Our scripture reading this morning is Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 410. Reading from Esther 1.1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we come to you this morning through your son, and we acknowledge that we need the food that you have for us this morning here. So these are your people, Father. This is your word. I ask that you would use the preaching of the word this morning to feed your flock. I pray that you'd give them the grace to hear it well, give me the grace to deliver it well. We ask all this in the name of your great son, Jesus. Amen. Who's in charge here? That's the sort of thing that you usually say just when things don't seem to be going very well. Who's in charge here? It's the kind of thing you say when you walk into a scenario that seems either totally unsatisfactory, or totally out of control. Maybe that's at a store or a restaurant where the service offered has been particularly bad, and you'd like to see things improved or made right. Who's in charge here, you might say? Or maybe you walk into a school classroom, or even, hypothetically, a nursery classroom, and it kind of feels like the inmates are running the asylum. And you look around and say, who's in charge here? Now, those examples are obviously lighthearted. They're easy. So let's bring the point home. I wonder, do you ever look around at the world and ask that question? 
Do you ever look at the details of your own life and ask the question, who's in charge here? Now, as a church, we know the answer to that question. We know God is in charge. He rules over all things. But when you look at the way things are, do you wonder what he's up to? Do you know what God is doing in the big picture of the world and even in the difficult details of your life? Well, our text this morning is going to help us with these questions. So let's go to the book of Esther and see how God rules over all things, even beauty pageants, according to plan. So if you haven't turned there already, let's go to the book of Esther. Again, that's on page 410 in the Bible that's there in your pew, if that's helpful to you. Esther is right before Job, right before Psalms, just right in the center of your Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Now, last week, Pastor Craig provided an overview of the book of Esther. I don't want to go through all of that again. I just want to remind you that this book depicts events that occur in the Medo-Persian Empire during the time of Judah's exile from the land of Israel. We'll talk more about exile later on. But this story takes place during the reign of Xerxes I, or Ahasuerus, who reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. And as we heard last week, the story of Esther is a story of deliverance for God's covenant people, a deliverance that underlies the Jewish feast of Purim. Now, our text today doesn't get into the main plot of that story, per se. We don't get into the crisis that underlies the main story. Rather, these first two chapters introduce the story. The stage is set for deliverance, and some of the main characters are introduced and positioned in such a way that sets things up for the deliverance to come. So how is the stage set? In chapter 1. Well, the story opens, as you heard, with a stunning display of royal power. We're introduced to this character, King Ahasuerus, the Medo Persian emperor, and he's described in a way that emphasizes his absolute power. He rules from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. It's a mind bogglingly vast empire that essentially encompasses the whole of the ancient Near Eastern world. And as we meet him, he's throwing a massive feast for his underlings. I say it's massive first because of the number of people. It's for an army and for the nobles and the governors of the provinces. And we heard there are at least 127 provinces, which means there are at least 127 governors coming to this party, plus whatever other nobles would come from each province. So there's a ton of people being invited to this feast. And it's a massive feast due to its length. It's supposed to last 180 days, almost six months. That is quite a party. (laughs) Now, perhaps these officials are not arriving all at once, but rather filtering through the royal court over the course of 180 days. It would be sort of a progressive reception with each group coming to a party, paying homage, the Ethiopian contingent one day, the Egyptian nobles here the next day. But either way, it's a powerful demonstration of the endless riches of this king. Six months of partying is a lot of trips to Costco, no matter how you cut it. (laughs) And verse 4 makes it clear, that's one of the points of the party. It was to show how great this guy is. Look look at at verse 4 again. He says he did this while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. 180 days. He wanted everyone in the whole world to see what a great, magnificent, all-powerful king he really was. 
And this feast is followed by yet another. This one for all the male citizens of the capital of Susa. And again, the king is showing off his glory. He opens up the garden court. He, he trots out the best decorations. Look again at verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Now that may not do much for you, but this is about as posh as it gets in the ancient Near East. This is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Persia edition. And the refreshments are bountiful as well. Golden vessels with various drinks, including the king's wine. And did you you catch the instruction given regarding the drinking? It's in verse 8. And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. In other words, drink as much as you want. And the bottomless drinks are another demonstration. This king is loaded. Now, Queen Vashti was running a separate party for the female subjects of the city, and this foreshadows a pivot to the queen in the story. But first, consider how this initial scene of glory and power and feasting functions in the larger story of the book of Esther. Think about it. The book of Esther is a backstory to the feast of Purim. The book aims to explain how that day of feasting and gladness came to be. That's where we're going. So it's significant that the book also begins with a feast. But it's a feast from which God's covenant people are noticeably absent. In fact, Ahasuerus' immense wealth and opulence is based in part on the plundered peoples of Judah. The Medo-Persians had gotten some of their wealth from plundering the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were the ones who had plundered and exiled Judah. So the covenant people of God are in exile. They are utterly marginalized, and the promises of God for them are nowhere on the horizon. And so the underlying tension of this introduction is, how do we get from this feast of exile to that final feast of deliverance? And the pieces begin to fall into place in the next scene. Let's reread verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar, and Karkos, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So on the last day of the feast, when the king's heart was merry, which you should read as he had had too much to drink, he sends for the queen. In this glorious display of wealth and power, she is the crowning jewel. Except that there's trouble in this pagan paradise. The queen refused to come. Now this is quite an unexpected turn in the story. This guy rules the world. He serves unlimited wine on golden couches, and yet he can't get his own queen to do what he wants. And so he's enraged. He turns to his wise men for advice on how to handle this insubordination legally. Let's read, beginning at verse 13. 
Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Mersena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Meda, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the king's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." So the advice of the wise men is essentially look is, is, is essentially this. The situation with Vashti, it's certainly a bad look, but it's actually worse than you think. Her lack of submission to you is going to spread like wildfire to all the wives in the empire, and soon every husband is going to be upset. The king's wrath, the queen's contempt, they will cover the empire. So make an example of Vashti, pass an unbreakable law to depose her and publish that ruling throughout the empire that will avert this plague of insubordination. So that's exactly what the king does. Vashti is deposed and the honor of husbands throughout the empire is preserved. Now, Pastor Craig warned us last week about moralizing in these stories where the story itself isn't trying to draw a moral. This is one of those places where it might be tempting to try to discern some life lessons. But this is not really marriage seminar material. (laughs) The important questions for the arc of the story is not who was right or wrong in this scenario. What you're intended to see in this marital schism is the stage being set for the arrival of new characters. Though God is not mentioned, it's suddenly clear that even the all-powerful king cannot control everything. Through his wife's insubordination and the advice of his wise men, he's now forced into a scenario in which a new queen is needed. So the curtains close on the feast scene and they reopen sometime later. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, 
under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So in this scene, the king's merriness, merriness, merriness from the wine and his anger over the queen, they've passed. And he realizes he's banished Vashti by unchangeable law. He's got no queen. And of course, a king needs a queen. So again, he relies on the advice of those around him for a queen replacement plan. They suggest gathering the most beautiful bachelorettes of Persia, bringing them to the capital, getting them properly made up, and then bringing them before the king. The young woman who most pleases the king will replace Vashti as queen. This is sort of Miss Persia, 475 BC. (laughs) But unlike modern beauty pageants, which at least pretend the selection process is about more than skin-deep criteria, here the only qualification is superficial. Find beautiful virgins, and the one who pleases the king gets the crown. Now at this point in the story... There's a pause briefly to introduce and give backstory on two new characters. Look at verses 5 to 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So for the first time, God's covenant people enter the scene. We're told about Mordecai. He's a Jew. That is, he's someone from Judah. But he's living in Susa. He's a Benjamite, which is significant since that was the tribe of Israel's first king, Saul. Nevertheless, his his lineage here is told in such a way as to remind readers of the state of the whole nation. They're exiled. The very reason Mordecai is in Susa is because he, or more likely one of his ancestors, was brought there in chains by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. So for the people of God, the promise of a king, the promise of a kingdom for Israel is nowhere on the horizon. Now, Mordecai, as it turns out, has been raising his younger cousin, Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther appears to be her Persian name. Her parents had died, so Mordecai had taken her in and raised her. Now, we're told she's beautiful, which clues us into why we're even talking about these people, these seemingly ordinary, marginalized people. After all, it's hard to imagine two more insignificant people in the mighty Persian empire than a couple of Jewish exiles, one of whom is an orphan. But God had so arranged the events within that mighty empire that Esther's beauty had become the ticket to the top. So having introduced Esther and Mordecai, let's read how the pageant plays out. Let's read verses 2, 8 through 18. So when the king's order... And his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, 
and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther, along with the rest of the beautiful bachelorettes of Persia, is taken, placed in the king's harem under the watchful eyes of the eunuch Haggai. They spend the next 12 months undergoing a makeover process that makes modern spas and salons seem like child's play. And at the end of this so-called beautification process, each woman spends one night with the king. After that, she's moved to the next harem under the care of Shaashgaz, And she wouldn't go back unless the king was pleased with her and invited her back by name. That's the pageant process. Now Esther, perhaps much to our surprise, does very well in this process. She finds favor with Haggai and gets a privileged position in the harem. She listens to Mordecai's advice about not disclosing her Jewish identity. She takes Haggai's advice again about what to wear for her appearance before the king, The text says she wins favor with everybody at every step of the process, including, finally, the king himself. He loves her above all the others, and the pageant is over. He sets the crown on her head, and for the third time in just these opening chapters, he throws a feast while the whole empire rejoices. And now in this feast, we begin to see how God might be working to bring about the final feast of the book of Purim. At the Feast of Purim. Esther is now at the king's side. She is his beloved. She enjoys his favor. There is one who has now arisen who can intercede for God's people at the appointed time. But she's not the only one who's arisen. There will be another deliverer in this story that must be sovereignly positioned before the crisis can take place. And that's Esther's older cousin, Mordecai. Look at verses 19 through 23. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. 
Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, the fact that Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate here is an indication that he was some kind of minor official in Ahasuerus' palace. It's not clear from the text whether he already had that role or if Esther got the job for him once she had become queen. Either way, while in the king's gate, he overhears a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther, the plot is found out and the perpetrators are executed. Now, remarkably, Mordecai isn't commended or rewarded in any way by the king. However, the deed doesn't go without note. Look again at the, ver- the end of verse 23. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that is a sentence you will want to remember in the weeks to come. Mordecai's noble deed on behalf of the king is written down. And it's just floating out there, waiting for somebody to discover. And if you want to hear the rest of the story and the significance of that little occurrence, you'll have to come back in future weeks to hear the book of Esther. Now, I'm guessing there might be some questions you have about this second half of the story, particularly about Esther's rise through the pageant to become queen. Let's just be honest that as modern readers, there are lots of parts of this story that at least puzzle us. Maybe they even make you uncomfortable or uneasy or make you want to say yuck. Like, for instance, we don't like the idea of a pagan king rounding up beautiful girls and placing them in his harem. We don't like a year-long beautification process that dead ends with most of these women spending the rest of their days in a, as a locally lonely concubine. And we really don't like, we really don't like that the pinnacle of this pageant is the young woman being brought in to spend a night with the king, which means exactly what you think it means. And it's on that basis, that night, and her overall good looks, that he decides whether he likes her or not. We don't like any of that. And what's more, you might be wondering about Esther's behavior here. The end of verse 8, it says that she, along with the other women, were taken to the king's palace. Now, you could read that as forcibly taken, and it is certainly true that none of these women had a choice in the matter. We saw what happened to Queen Vashti when she declined the king's request. How much more the average citizen. But as we also saw, the picture painted here of Esther is not of someone fighting to escape, protesting that she shouldn't be married to a pagan. Instead, the picture is of her skillfully winning the favor of everyone at every turn. We're not told what she's thinking along the way, what her motivations are, but the story is told in such a way that it is a happy thing when Esther is crowned queen. So one part of the answer to that tension you might be feeling is to recognize again that the Bible is not moralizing in telling this story. Especially as it relates to the behavior of the king and the harem, it's telling you how things were, not how things ought to be. This is how Persian kings really acted. 
This is how harems really worked. This is how women were really treated in the ancient Near East. The Bible's not sanitized, and it relates all kinds of ugly things. And many times the narrator is not interested in cataloging all the ways in which what is happening is evil or unjust. That's not the point of the story. Nor is the point of the story here the ethics of Esther's motives in her rise to the throne. We'd love to know, what was Esther thinking along the way? But apparently that's not what's important to the story. What's important is that she rose to the throne. Why? Because this is a story about how God is going to work deliverance for his people. And this particular part is about how he sets the stage for that deliverance. It's about how even when the times are dark and the promise seems questionable, God reigns. He's in charge, even over the pagan nations, to arrange everything to raise up a savior in the place of favor with the almighty king. All of which is another way of saying this story is not finally about Esther. And it's certainly not about King Ahasuerus, but it's about God's deliverance for his people in Jesus Christ. It prophesies how God sovereignly sets the stage for salvation in his son. We saw how in the opening scenes of Esther, things were pretty dark for the people of God. Exiled, marginalized, the promise called into question. And so too, leading up to the arrival of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. In fact, it was darker. The people of God lived under the thumb of an empire even more vast and powerful than the Persians, the Romans. They'd returned to the land and they'd rebuilt the temple. But where was the promise of a king and a kingdom? God himself was silent for 400 years. But it is out of that utter darkness that Jesus Christ, the deliverer, rises. In the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, enslaved in their sins. And as in Esther, God directed the seemingly all-powerful pagan empire to position his deliverer right where he was needed. It was Caesar Augustus whose decree of taxation sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in the right town. It was the threat of Herod that sent Jesus down to Egypt so he could arise from Egypt, Exodus, as God's true son. It was Pilate wanting to demonstrate friendship with Caesar that signed off on Jesus' crucifixion. It was Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross. And all of that was according to the definite plan of God. The powers of the day only ever accomplished what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. The raging and scheming of the nations was the very means that God used to accomplish blood-bought redemption. God put forward Jesus as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sinners. That's what the cross is about. And God did it through the God-hating plans of pagans. Which is exactly what the story of Esther prophesies. God rules over the nations to accomplish deliverance in Jesus Christ. And that's not just a past deliverance because you see, all that God has promised us in Jesus has not yet come to pass. We still await final deliverance at his second coming. Right now, the people of God are exiles. We're strangers. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. The church is afflicted by Satan in his rage because he knows his time is short. 
And yet Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. His kingdom is being quietly built, bringing in a number no man can count. God is sovereignly controlling all things such that the church is advancing until that day when Jesus summons his people and invites us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Esther teaches us that God rules and nothing will finally thwart his covenant promise to deliver his people in Jesus Christ. And it also prophesies of the deliverer himself. It prophesies of the one positioned to save. Esther's rise from utter obscurity points us to Jesus, the king born and laid in a manger. His family is poor. He lives in backwater Nazareth. He's got no kingly majesty in his appearance that would make you think this is the one. This is the Messiah. He is a humble, suffering servant. And that's part of why the Jewish people of Jesus' day stumbled over him. He didn't look like the kind of deliverer they were expecting. But they should have let their expectations be shaped by the prophetic story of Esther. The one to save God's people would rise from obscurity and humility. And yet Jesus, like Esther, is revealed to be the one beloved of the king. That's what the father says of his obedient son when his ministry commences. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as with Esther, because he was the beloved of the king, that means he alone was positioned to sacrifice himself for those who would fall under the king's curse. That's how this story is going to unfold. Esther is positioned as the favored one, able to sacrifice herself and thereby to intercede. So Jesus, who enjoys eternal favor and love, was willing to forgo that favor on the cross for sinners. He bore the Father's wrath on the cross so that he might intercede for us and so that we might enjoy God's favor forever. So Esther is not just about how God reigns in general, but it's about how God reigns to bring deliverance through his son. Now let's step back and ask, what does any of this have to do with us? How does this help us in our day-to-day? Well, first I'd say, you ought to view the big picture events of this world through the lens that Esther provides. That is, through the lens of God's sovereign rule to bring salvation in Christ. Not only did God do that in Esther's time, raise up a deliverer, not only did God do that in Jesus' first coming to bring about the cross, resurrection, ascension, but now, right now, God is bending all the events of history for the final day of deliverance in his son. And I'm saying, look at the big picture of the world with that lens. Because until that day, when Jesus brings his kingdom in its fullness, the world in which we live often looks a lot like the world in which Mordecai and Esther lived. It looks like God's covenant people, the church, totally marginalized. And the pagan world, the Christ-hating, God-denying, sin-glorifying world in which we live seems to be doing very well. It appears, as the saying goes, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and gleefully so. You could look at the persecution of Christians globally in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Pakistan, We could go on. These are places where Satan's opposition to the church continues to take the threat, the form of threats of violence and death. 
You could think about our own country here where the church is not truly persecuted but where sin is glorified and promoted at the highest levels of government and culture. You could look at our own backyard here at the low, low rate of evangelical church attendance in New England, at the rate at which historic church buildings are being turned into libraries and apartments and coffee houses. And you could look at those things and you could say, where... Where is God's promise of Jesus' kingdom? Where is the advance of the church over which the gates of hell shall not prevail? And the answer from Esther is, don't judge the end of the story by its middle. We know where Esther is going. It ends with the people of God feasting in victory. And we know where our story ends, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we see this morning is that even as the enemies of God feast and celebrate, God is already moving things in place to flip the tables and bring deliverance for his people. Even when the promise seems most questionable, he's working all things together for the exaltation of his Son and the good of his people. That's what we sang earlier this morning in the song, God Moved, by William Cooper. We sang this, we sang, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's right. Even when it seems the wicked are prospering, often even at the expense of the people of God, God's plan for the spread of the gospel, the return of his son, the everlasting joy of his people cannot be thwarted. So I'm exhorting you, brothers and sisters, you don't need to be intimidated by headlines You don't need to be cowed. You don't need to be even pessimistic, gloomy, or grumpy. In fact, being a miserable, puddle-glum Christian is no sign of maturity. It betrays a short-sightedness that the gospel lens of Esther helps correct. Our God reigns, brothers and sisters. He reigns, and he will bring deliverance through his Son. Don't let your actions or attitudes tell a different story. In fact, more than just killing the grumpiness of your own heart, you can also learn from this story to adopt an attitude of what you might call holy humor towards the world's opposition to God. Because here we see the immense power and prestige that the enemies of God have. It's all a short-lived facade. God is the one ultimately pulling the strings. And even that charade has a fixed timetable. He will only allow their pretensions to go on for so long. We know it won't last. And we even know that the actions of the enemy are designed by God to bring about his plan. In fact, one of the features of these opening pages, and indeed the entire book, is to show the comedic weakness and folly of those who, in the eyes of the world, are powerful and wealthy, particularly the king. He's initially portrayed as the most powerful man in the world, able to make rivers of wine flow at his parties. But after that initial scene, things go downhill quickly. From his rivers of wine, he drinks too much, and he makes a demand of his queen that she flatly refuses, and he has to rely on his advisors for an action plan, an irrevocable banishment of the queen. When things cool down, he realizes he's in a bind, so his advisors concoct this pageant idea, and the only criteria for the new queen is something the old queen had, which is beauty. So Esther becomes queen without anyone even knowing where she's from. And there's another irony of Ahasuerus's power that's worth noting here. He hardly does anything here in this part of the story or in the whole rest of the book unless someone suggests it to him. Whether that's his wise men or the princes or eventually Haman, Esther, 
Mordecai, he's never really in charge. The king who reigns over everything actually controls nothing. In fact, the only thing he seems to direct are the decorations and the drinks. (laughs) So the king's not in charge. Neither is the queen or the wise men or Esther or Mordecai. The only person who's obviously in charge is the one who's never mentioned. God! God's in charge. That's funny, isn't it? While the apparently powerful and wise stumble and bumble, God's plan for his people moves forward without a hitch. God is in charge. In Psalm 2, it says that when the nations rage, God's response is to laugh at them because all their machinations and might can't stop him from installing his king. Esther confirms this for us. So we can face powerful opposition in our own day, not only with confidence, but with a smile because we know the worst they can do is kill us. And what's that? We have a resurrection, and then we have a marriage supper, and then we watch Satan and his minions cast in the lake of fire, and then we enjoy God forever. So don't be gloomy, Christian, when you look at the world. Its wealth and its power will be shown in the final analysis to be utter folly. Laugh at the time to come. Look at life through the lens of God's sovereign rule to bring deliverance through Jesus. And for those of you who sit here who aren't Christians, by which I mean you've never repented of your sin, you've never put your trust in Christ, I would remind you that whatever the world around you is saying, to oppose Jesus is to be on the wrong side of history. It would be eternal folly to spend the years of your life living for yourself, for the approval of your peers, your family, your co-workers, your spouse, whoever, without giving a thought to God, the judge of all the earth. No matter how well life seems to be going for you right now, all of history is bending toward a day when if you stay on your present course, you will be cast away from God forever in hell, forever enduring conscious eternal torment. So I call on you today to turn to Jesus, the one who died for sinners, who rose on the third day, who intercedes for God, for his people. Turn from your sin and trust in this humble king, and you will be in God's favor forever. Now again, for my fellow believers, one way this text helps us is to see in the big picture of the world that God is bringing deliverance in Jesus. But you also need to use this text to look at the smaller picture of your own life. You see, the deliverance God is working through Jesus is not only the return of his son, it is also the conformity of his people to the image of his son. God is preparing that final day for his people, and he is preparing his people for that final day. Now, why is that important to believe? Because it means that not only are the big events of the world designed by God for good, It also means the small events of your life are designed by God for good. All of it. He's working all of it for good. And that good is defined as conformity to the image of his son. That's a big piece of his salvation promise to you. To make you like Jesus. That's your good. Your good is sanctification. Your good is greater holiness. And God is working carefully as a master planner, crafting every detail of your life toward that glorious end. Even as we see here, when God seems most absent, when things look most dark, God is keeping his promise to deliver you through Jesus.
So think of the situation in your life that seems most problematic to you. Where you are most tempted to believe that God is absent. There are a thousand different kinds of difficulties and scenarios that could come to mind. There are physical difficulties, sickness, disease, disabilities, exhaustion. There are financial difficulties, dealing with inflation, planning for retirement, saving for a house, saving for college. There are property difficulties, problems with your car, problems with your house, problems with your stuff. There are occupational difficulties, unemployment, unpleasant supervisors or coworkers, an unsatisfying job, difficult schoolwork or classes. There are family difficulties, marital problems, parenting small children or adult children, caring for aging parents, the unfulfilled desire to be married or to have children. Whatever the difficulty is that feels like it's dominating your mind and your life, consider it afresh. And I'm calling you on you not to be angry with God, but to believe, for those of you in Christ, that God is working even that difficulty together for your good. He is. He really is. He intends to use that so that you love him more, so that you trust him more, so that you're more marked by the fruits of the Spirit. God has promised to make you more like his Son, and that's a promise he's orchestrating all the events of your life to guarantee. I remind you again of William Cooper's hymn that we sang earlier. Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread, the ones that are on your mind as I'm talking, are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Yes, the clouds yield the blessings of deliverance from your sin, greater conformity to Jesus Christ. That is what God is up to. We can trace that design for deliverance when we look at the beginning of Esther. Indeed, our God is in charge. Even when things are bleak, he is working all of it for salvation through his beloved son. May we embrace his sovereign good purposes for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Esther. We thank you for this story, for what you're teaching us through it. And now we ask that you take this word that we've heard, that you'd plant it deep within us, so that we would hear it truly and obey it, so that it would bear fruit, not only today, but for years to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.